LearnOutLoud.com presents the Philosophy Podcast. Here we will periodically showcase audio renditions of great works from philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Nietzsche, and more. For more educational audio and video, please visit our website at www.LearnOutLoud.com. This podcast is provided by Blackstone Audio. To browse over 3,000 Blackstone Audio titles, please visit www.BlackstoneAudio.com. To purchase this audiobook and hundreds more titles from Blackstone Audio on CD, cassette, MP3 CD, and audio download, please visit www.learnoutloud.com slash Blackstone. Knowledge Products presents The Giants of Philosophy, narrated by Charlton Heston. This is number one on Aristotle. Aristotle, probably more than anyone else, has shaped our Western intellectual traditions. For several centuries after his death, he dominated intellectual life in the Greco-Roman world. During the collapse of the Roman Empire, his works were lost in much of Europe. They were preserved and studied only in centers of learning in the Arabic world. Since his writings were rediscovered in Western Europe in the 12th century, Aristotle has been familiar to every liberally educated person. Much of what he wrote more than 2,300 years ago still rings true today. Even when Aristotle appears to be mistaken about something, what he says is invariably subtle, complex, and interesting. Diogenes Laertius, an ancient biographer, lists over 150 works attributed to Aristotle. Even a cursory reading of this list will reveal the breathtaking scope of his interests. He answered virtually every important philosophical question that's ever been conceived by the human mind. We shouldn't be surprised, then, to learn that St. Thomas Aquinas referred to Aristotle simply as the philosopher. Dante called him the master of those who know. And the historian Will Durant has said, Two thousand years have changed merely the incidentals of Aristotle's logic. His creation of this new discipline of thought and his firm establishment of its essential lines remains among the lasting achievements of the human mind. Aristotle lived much of his life in Athens, though he was never an Athenian citizen. He was born in 384 B.C. in Stagira, a small city in remote northern Greece. The Peloponnesian War, Athens' disastrous war with Sparta, had been over for only 20 years. Socrates had been executed by the Athenian people for practicing philosophy only 15 years earlier. And Plato, who was in his mid-forties, had just founded his academy in Athens. Little can be known of Aristotle's childhood. Diogenes Laertius provides only a brief account. Aristotle was the son of Nicomachus and Phaestus. His father, Nicomachus, resided with Amyntas, the king of Macedonia, and served as his physician and friend. Aristotle was probably orphaned when he was still quite young. He was raised by a beneficent guardian in the court of King Amyntas. At the age of 17, Aristotle was sent to Athens to finish his education at Plato's Academy. Diogenes Laertius tells us that Aristotle was not only brilliant, he was also somewhat vain. He provides us with a terse physical description. He was the most knowledgeable of Plato's students. He had a lisp, 
slender thighs, small eyes, and was conspicuous on account of his dress, his rings, and his hair. Aristotle stayed at the academy for twenty years, first as a student, then as an instructor. We simply can't say how much personal interest Plato took in his brilliant student or how Aristotle responded, but this much is clear. Aristotle's philosophy is deeply indebted to Plato. This is evident throughout his writings, even in the works we think were his last. But ironically, Aristotle would later severely criticize many of the basic tenets of Plato's philosophy. In 348 B.C., Aristotle left the academy. He was 35 and was not to return to what had been his home for two decades. According to Diogenes Laertius, Aristotle left the academy when Plato was still alive. Hence, they say, Plato remarked, Aristotle rejects us, just as a colt kicks at the mother who bore him. Other ancient sources suggest that Aristotle left in anger when he learned that Plato had willed the presidency of the academy to his nephew, Speusippus. Aristotle considered Speusippus to be his intellectual inferior. But whatever the truth of this claim, Aristotle, along with his companion Hermias and a small group of former students at the academy, left Athens to settle in Asia Minor. Today, that's the western coast of Turkey. About 343 B.C., Philip, the ruler of Macedon, invited Aristotle to tutor his 13-year-old son. This child would later be known to the world as Alexander the Great. Plutarch, the Roman biographer, describes this relationship. Alexander not only received his ethical and political teachings, but also his oral teachings, fit only for the serious thinker. For when Alexander had crossed into Asia and learned that he had published these doctrines in books, he wrote him a letter on behalf of philosophy, which is now repeated. Alexander wishes Aristotle well, but you did not do well in publishing your oral doctrines. For in what shall I surpass others if the doctrines about which I have been educated will be held in common by all men. Other ancient sources tell us that Alexander, knowing of Aristotle's love of anatomy, had specimens shipped to him from the far reaches of his empire. Yet we can never really know how much to rely on these stories about the relationship between Aristotle and his famous pupil. In 335 B.C., Alexander became ruler of the Macedonian Empire. In little more than a decade, his empire encompassed an area stretching from present-day Italy in the west, through Persia in the Middle East, all the way to India's western border. Also, in 335 B.C., Aristotle returned to Athens. Only this time he didn't make the academy his home. Instead, he established a rival school in rented buildings just outside the walls of Athens, in an area known as the Lyceum. There, Aristotle conducted his research, wrote, and lectured his students. These lectures, according to the Roman biographer Aulus Gellius, were divided into two types, the public or exoteric lectures and the oral or acroatic lectures. W. K. C. Guthrie, the great British historian of philosophy, has quoted Aulus in describing these lectures. The name exoteric was applied to rhetoric, the cultivation of a quick wit, and education in civics. Acroatic, on the other hand, were the works concerned with more arcane and exact philosophy. 
In the Lyceum, he devoted the mornings to the acroatic subjects and did not allow anyone to attend without assuring himself of their ability, educational grounding, keenness to learn, and willingness to work. The exoteric lectures and speech classes he held in the same place in the evening and opened them to any young men without restriction. This he called the evening walk. The other, the early one, since in both he walked as he talked. If this account's at all correct, we can understand why even centuries later Aristotle was called the peripatetic, after the Greek word for walking around. News of Alexander's death reached Athens in 323 B.C., and the Athenians, always lovers of democracy, quickly revolted against their Macedonian rulers. Aristotle had strong Macedonian ties, so he became a personal target of anti-Macedonian sentiment. He was promptly indicted on a trumped-up charge of impiety. Aristotle, his accusers charged, had committed blasphemy. Rather than stand trial, Aristotle left Athens and returned to northern Greece, where he'd been born. His choice to leave, of course, stands in direct contrast to Socrates' earlier decision to remain in Athens when he faced his accusers and drank poison at their command. As one ancient biographer tells us, perhaps apocryphally, Aristotle defended his decision to leave rather than stand trial, saying that he was preventing the Athenians from sinning twice against philosophy. Within a year of leaving Athens, Aristotle was dead at the age of 63. Diogenes hints that he may have committed suicide by drinking hemlock, driven to despair by the turn of events against him. But there is evidence suggesting that he died of natural causes. He left a wife and two children. Aristotle's philosophy says we should practice moderation in all things. Yet one ancient critic said that Aristotle is moderate to excess. <laughs> Many modern students of Aristotle are surprised to learn that ancient authors often praised his writings for their clarity, wit, and carefully crafted style. Almost no modern reader would be tempted to use such adjectives. What's come down to us under the name of Aristotle is to modernize utterly opaque and devoid of humor. Perhaps Will Durant expressed it best. We must not expect of Aristotle such literary brilliance as floods the pages of the dramatist philosopher Plato. Instead of giving us great literature, in which philosophy is embodied and obscured in myth and imagery, Aristotle gives us science, technical, abstract, concentrated. If we go to him for entertainment, we shall sue for the return of our money. To reconcile these different assessments of Aristotle's writing style, we should realize that ancient commentators were referring to what Aristotle wrote to be published. Much of this writing was in a form like Plato's dialogues, but all of these works, except for a few fragments, have been lost. In fact, we have only a fraction, maybe as little as one-fifth of the Aristotelian writings that were available in antiquity. The surviving works were almost certainly not intended for publication. They often appear to be sketchy lecture notes. Some of them actually may have been notes taken by students. Aristotle revised his lectures over the years, and both his original and his revised views probably were placed together in a manuscript by an ancient editor. As a result, 
we find different views expressed on a single topic, sometimes inside the space of just a few lines. And it's not always easy to tell which one represents Aristotle's final opinion about the matter. So we must study him without his original writings. Before we discuss Aristotle's philosophy, we should consider how he conceived the relationship between philosophy and logic. For Aristotle, philosophy is an effort to use reason to find truth in a specific area of inquiry, such as ethics or theology. Logic, on the other hand, only deals with the ways in which we distinguish correct from incorrect reasoning. Logic, taken by itself, can't establish truth, and so it can't yield knowledge. Therefore, logic is not, strictly speaking, a part of philosophy. Nevertheless, philosophers must be sure their reasoning's correct, so Aristotle insists we must master logic before we begin to study philosophy. Aristotle's logical investigations are based on the theory of the syllogism, that is, a deductive argument which draws a conclusion from two premises. If we start with the two premises that all Greek philosophers seek knowledge and Aristotle was a Greek philosopher, we can conclude that Aristotle sought knowledge. Of course, there's an infinity of possible syllogisms. Aristotle's genius as a logician lies in recognizing two of the most basic facts about deduction. First, he says any syllogism must obey a small set of rules if its conclusions to follow logically from what is assumed, that is, from the syllogism's premises. Second, whether or not a syllogism obeys those rules depends upon what modern logicians call the formal characteristics of the syllogism. These include the kinds of propositions involved, their order, and the arrangement of the syllogism's principal terms. In Aristotle's work, The Prior Analytics, he sets forth what he believes is a complete list of these rules. We might note in passing that only in the last two centuries have logicians shown why Aristotle's theory of the syllogism is incomplete. As we've seen, even a complete understanding of logic will never provide the philosopher with what he seeks— Knowledge. For Aristotle, knowledge in the strictest sense is what he called episteme, a Greek term that's usually somewhat misleadingly interpreted as scientific knowledge. Unlike what we think of as scientific knowledge, Aristotle intends the term to include a knowledge of nature, but not to be restricted to it. As we'll see, Aristotle thinks we can achieve scientific knowledge, episteme, of things like the nature of God. What then is scientific knowledge? Here Aristotle writes, We believe we have scientific knowledge of anything whenever we think we know that the cause from which a fact came about is its cause, and that the fact cannot be otherwise. If any fact is really the subject of scientific knowledge, it cannot be otherwise than it is. Aristotle then describes how we acquire scientific knowledge. We contend that scientific knowledge comes about through demonstration. By demonstration, I mean a syllogism, which provides us with scientific knowledge. It proceeds from premises that are true, prior to, and better known than the conclusion. A demonstration, then, is not just any syllogism. It must have true premises which are prior to the conclusion. 
We have to know the premises before we can know the conclusion. When Aristotle says that to gain scientific knowledge we must have the cause of the fact, he's claiming that we must know the reasons why a conclusion is true. Of course, this isn't to say that we must scientifically know the premises before we can be convinced that something's true. We may feel absolutely certain, for example, that a branch cut from a tree will fall to the ground. But if Aristotle's right, we can't really know that the cut branch will fall unless we first know the propositions that explain why it falls. Aristotle says that the branch is composed primarily of earth and that all things composed primarily of earth will fall to the ground. According to Aristotle, the second condition of scientific knowledge is that we know only the things that cannot be otherwise. He means anything we know is scientifically proven always to be true, or, as he also says, it must be true at least for the most part. For example, we can scientifically know that three internal angles of a triangle add up to be equal to two right angles, or that dogs bear their young alive. The fact about triangles is always true. The fact about dogs is true for the most part. Also, both can be explained by other basic truths of mathematics and biology. Of course, once we scientifically know that a conclusion is true, we can use that knowledge as a premise in another syllogism to derive yet more knowledge. So Aristotle thinks that knowledge in a particular discipline can be laid out to provide a perfectly systematic body of knowledge. Each piece of knowledge is derived from something else that's already known to be true. Every fact is in turn derived from even more basic knowledge. Obviously, not all the truths making up a discipline can be demonstrated. There are some premises that are themselves not deduced. The premises that provide the ultimate basis from which everything else is deduced. We say that not all knowledge is demonstrative. The knowledge of immediately known premises is not demonstrative. For it is clear that this is necessary. For if it is necessary to know the prior premises from which demonstration proceeds, and if this stops with the immediately known premises, these are not derived by demonstration. But we say, they are the first principles of knowledge. The first principles of scientific knowledge must themselves be knowable, yet they're not derived from anything. They must be self-explanatory. Definitions of key terms are examples of such first principles. But if the first principles are self-explanatory and not derived from anything else, how do we ever grasp them? It appears that the faculty by which we reach first principles belongs to all animals. For an animal has an innate power to discriminate, which is called sense perception. And memory comes about through sense perception, as we claim. Yet any frequent memory of the same thing gives rise to an experience. For the memories that are many in number constitute a single experience of something, Experience establishes the one in the many in the soul. Experience is the starting point of all art and science. It is clear, then, that we must grasp the first principles by means of induction, for that is the way perception forms a general concept.
In this difficult passage, Aristotle seems to say that our grasp of first principles must begin by perceiving a number of things of the same type, like dogs or humans or triangles. When we remember what we've perceived, the mind, through a process Aristotle calls induction, conceives an essential common characteristic of all the various items perceived. Something grasped by induction is self-evidently true. We need no explanation of why it's true, so such a fact may serve as a first principle of scientific knowledge. These first principles are the basis of all scientific knowledge, so we must be confident that they are true, so we can be confident of the truths we derive from them. Sense perception is the way we grasp first principles, but it can't be the way we finally comprehend them. If Aristotle's right, sense perception is no more reliable than logical deduction from known premises. So Aristotle says we must comprehend first principles by a different faculty of the mind, a faculty that provides absolute certainty. He calls this faculty intuition. He argues that there must be such a faculty. There can be no scientific knowledge of first principles. But since nothing can be more certain than scientific knowledge except intuition, it must be intuition that grasps first principles. Since we have no other source of certainty besides scientific knowledge, the source of scientific knowledge must be intuition. Aristotle thought that, strictly speaking, there are only three disciplines that yield scientific knowledge, physics, metaphysics, and mathematics. He refers to his concept of physics as what today we might call the principles of natural science. He refers to his concept of metaphysics as first philosophy. Aristotle believed that all three disciplines, physics, metaphysics, and mathematics, yield knowledge that's invariably or at least generally true. But these three disciplines also yield knowledge that's valuable purely for its own sake. He refers to the three, physics, first philosophy, and mathematics, as purely theoretical disciplines. What Aristotle calls the practical disciplines, ethics and politics, are studies of how people should live if they and their communities are to flourish. He frequently warns us that, unlike the theoretical disciplines, the practical disciplines deal with relatively imprecise topics. There will invariably be many exceptions to any general truths about politics and ethics. Aristotle sometimes mentions a third group, the productive disciplines. No doubt he has in mind disciplines like engineering or medicine. The titles of Aristotle's works listed by ancient biographers, however, tell us that he had little interest in the disciplines of this third sort. Keeping in mind Aristotle's three types of disciplines, theoretical, practical, and productive, let's turn to the most basic of the theoretical sciences, metaphysics, or first philosophy. Metaphysics deals with the most basic of all questions of existence. As Aristotle conceived it, metaphysics attempts to answer the question of what really exists, or, as he puts it, what is substance. There is a science which studies substance by itself, and what pertains to it, considered by itself. This science is not the same as any of the particular sciences, since none of those inquires about substance by itself. 
By dividing off some part of this science, they study what exists in an accidental sense, as, for example, they do in the mathematics. Since we are searching for the first principles and the most basic causes, it is clear that they must belong to the subject matter by virtue of its own nature. Thus, if those who investigated the elements of living beings were investigating these principles, they must search for the elements of substance itself, and not substance in an accidental sense. Hence, it is necessary for us to grasp the first principles of substance itself. This passage is taken from a work that has come down to us under the title, The Metaphysics. Actually, it's a series of twelve loosely organized lectures. People often think of metaphysics as Aristotle did, as the branch of philosophy that attempts to answer the most difficult and abstract questions of existence itself. But the Greek phrase metaphysica actually has nothing to do with the issues Aristotle raises. The Greek metaphysica simply means after the physics. In other words, it means following the lectures on natural science. An early editor probably called the lectures metaphysics because he found them located immediately after another work called the physics in a collection of manuscripts that had come into his hands. Aristotle himself refers to these lectures as first philosophy, and they concern what he regarded as the most basic of all philosophical topics. Aristotle's method of inquiry requires us to begin with things that seem to be obviously true. Then we look for the principles that will best explain them. Clearly, we can truly understand the world only if we can explain what is true about it. To find these obvious truths, we need occasionally to ask what other philosophers have said. But we also need to consider what most people, the many Aristotle calls them, think about the topic. The following passage gives us a good indication of how Aristotle thought we ought to begin our investigation. He starts with a generally agreeable assumption that real things, substances, are the individual items that we see and feel. Real things are things like people, dogs, trees, the various parts of our bodies. Substance is believed to be characteristic, most obviously, of bodies. And so we say that both animals and plants and their parts are substances, and so are natural bodies such as fire and water and earth and things of such a sort, and all things that are parts of these and composed of these. But philosophers, according to Aristotle, are likely to give more sophisticated, but not necessarily more helpful accounts of what is real. Some philosophers think that nothing is a substance except things that can be sensed, whereas others think there are eternal beings, which are more numerable and more real. For example, Plato assumed there were two kinds of substances, the forms and the mathematical objects, as well as a third sort of thing, namely sensible bodies. We must inquire which of these statements are right and which are not right, and what things are existing substances and whether there are or are not any besides sensible substances, and how sensible substances exist, and whether there is a substance that exists apart from a body.
In this passage, Aristotle's no doubt thinking about Plato's degrees of reality doctrine. Plato believed that there are really different kinds of substances. First, there are concepts, which he called forms and ideas. There are also mathematical relationships. Forms are things like the concepts of justice and beauty. Mathematical relationships are things like the square root of four is two, and the square of the hypotenuse of a triangle equals the sum of the squares of the other two sides. Although forms and mathematical relationships are, of course, abstract, Plato believed they really exist. Indeed, because they can never change, they exist eternally. Forms are also absolutely perfect. The form of justice is the perfection of justice. The form of beauty is the perfection of beauty. For Plato, then, sensible bodies, concrete objects that we can see and feel, like trees and cows and human bodies, are actually less real than abstractions. Sensible bodies are always subject to change, and they never perfectly embody any particular characteristics. Whenever we see a beautiful woman, for example, we can always detect some imperfection. Hence, we can always imagine a more beautiful woman. Nowhere, though, does Aristotle make his own view so clear that we can be entirely confident about how he understands existence. He doesn't fully answer his own question, what things are substances. But this much is clear. On this issue, Aristotle sides with the average person and against Plato and like-minded philosophers. For Aristotle, real things are limited to sensible substances, with one exception, God.